Season three, ladies and gentlemen, of Chewing the Gristle is upon us. We've got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're going to let the good times roll. Are you ready to pound the gristle? We ride. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special treat this week, the mighty Fred Tackett of Little Feet, also a man who has played on more sessions with more iconic artists than anyone I can personally think of, and a heck of a nice guy, hell of a good guitar player as well, the originator of the mighty Texas Twister Lick himself, Fred Tackett, this week on Chewing the Gristle. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, yet another festive installment of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Koch. I'm here with someone who I have admired for many, many years. One of the highlights of my career, I consider sitting in with this gentleman and the glorious band of Little Feet. It's been my extreme pleasure to play along with his glorious riff of Texas Twister, and we get to play it in in tandem, in stereo, if you will. And... Uh, just an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. I'm so glad you could uh, take some time for us today, Fred. How the heck are you? I'm good, man. Well, like I said, you're the only guy I've run across that can actually play that, you know, lick with me, man. But so we got like, yeah, we got stereo Texas twisters, man. Oh, well, I'll tell you what. It's always a blast playing. Uh, yeah, that man. I'll never forget when I first heard that lick. I was like, you know, you know what's so crazy about it is in addition to being you know, just an iconic kind of kind of a chicken pickety riff is that you do it on a strat in the four position on the uh, and and I always thought it was wild as I got to know you and and Paul is that you guys that, that's like where you like to live is the four four position on a strat it's just such an icon uh, you know most people think that is a darker sound but you guys get like every tone imaginable out of that <laughs> position from you know clean tones, overdriven. So how did you kind of stumble upon that as like your thing? Oh, I think I was listening to some kind of John McLaughlin riff or something. And I think it's all like, like, you know, pull-offs, you know, right, pull-offs right. and open strings and mirrors and smoke. You know? It's not glorious. really hard when you know how to do it. Right. Well, <laughs> it's, it's hard to do it. In, in, it's hard to do it in time though, isn't it? It's hard to get that. You know, I remember, you know, when I had to review it a little bit to to play that lick with you, uh, I always want to push that rascal, but it's that second part's got to be laid back a bit. So it's it's just one of those things where the it's it's a pockety thing, doggone. Yeah, it. you're right. Yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I used to be part of another another song, you know, that uh, uh, Tom Jan's uh, recording we did with uh, David Lindy and, and Jeff Picaro and, and I think David Hungate. And uh, we we needed some kind of like instrumental thing in the middle of this guy of Tom's Jans's tune, and uh, you know I said, oh here's this lick I've been working on, and so we put that in there, and it was on I don't remember the name of the song, but one time one of our front of house guys found it and played it and said, ah, I see where you came up with that one. Ah. So it was like uh, it was on another record before it actually became Texas Twister. Ah ha. You know what I, I I you know I knew you played on a ton of records back in the day, but when I went online this morning to just kind of see, I mean the discography is mind numbing. You know, I, it's like you know I talked to uh, Steve Lukather a while back, and of course everyone knows all the sessions he did. But good lord, you've played with everyone and their brother. From as I'm just reading down this list, it's uh, you know everyone from uh, Kenny Loggins, Boss Skaggs, Carol Bear Sayer. Uh, Tanya Tucker to, to Bob Dylan to Clint Black to Judy Collins, uh, Jackson Brown, Harry Nielsen, Arlo Guth. It's insane. Yeah, a whole bunch of different people. <laughs> so when you were doing those sessions, I mean, obviously most of that was guitar, but you obviously did some mandolin. Did you ever do trumpet parts on some of this stuff as well? I, uh, I played trumpet on a Fleetwood Mac song. <laughs> <laughs> they told me that, uh, yeah, we had a, uh, they wanted a kind of a milesy kind of trumpet thing, and uh, the, our guitar tech at the time was also working with them. And uh, he said, "Well, call Fred; he can do that." You know, it's a simple little thing. And they told me I was the only guy that had like you know done an overdub that wasn't a Fleetwood Mac guy before then. You know, but yeah, I played a little trumpet solo on that. 
And occasionally <laughs> here and there, I'll play something, but not very often. Not very often. So when you when you started doing sessions, are you know it, it's kind of a fascinating thing when I when I did talk to uh, Lukather about his session days. You know, I was curious about the fact. I was like, so. You know, when I was in school, going to school for music, which which sounds weird, but, um, you know, they used to just kind of, you know, one of the goals was, you know, being in Wisconsin here is that it was like everyone was doing jingle sessions down in Chicago. Right. But they kind of, they terrorized us by saying, you know, down in Chicago, when you go into a session, they put the sheet music in front of you and you run it through one time, not to make sure that you can play it, but to make sure that the notes are right. <laughs> on the yeah. chart because you know the you know the implication was your sight reading has to be so good that you know and so it terrorized us all oh and yeah when I, when I started doing sessions like well most of the time it's just chord charts and occasionally they'll they would be a line that you would have to do but most of the time it was just under you know uh, it was just like a sketch for you to just come up with parts how much of the, how much of the stuff did you did where it had to be written or when it was like had to be exact off the page versus stuff where they just wanted Fred to do his thing? Usually, uh, any kind of record date, it was just like, do your thing, you know, with a chord chart, or even then, sometimes, you know, lately, they don't even give you a chord chart. They right. just come in and say, here's the tune, go play it. And maybe someone will, you know, generously make out a chord chart for somebody. But the days of hiring an arranger are gone. But uh, the only on movie dates, you know, when I, was, when I would do movie dates, you know, Howard Roberts famously said it's like 90% boredom and then 10% absolute fear because you'll be, you know, going through this book and you don't get a chance to look at it. You show up at the date and they hand you the black book that's got all the cues written out in it. And you just go through them one after the other. And, you know, you'll turn the first 15 pages and you're playing whole notes, you know, you're playing strumming a little whole note. And then you'll turn the page and it's a love scene. And you've got an acoustic guitar part, and it's just you, <laughs> you know, and it's all written out. And it's like three, four, and you're going, what, what, what? And there's six flats or something ridiculous in it. Oh. You know, that shit will happen to you, man. In fact, uh, 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 Victor Feldman, God rest his soul, man, was a good friend of ours and, uh, and uh, a wonderful person. I worked on uh, Tom Waits' uh, swordfish trombones with him as a percussionist as opposed to a piano player but we did a lot of movie dates and we were on one together where he was playing vibes and i was playing the acoustic guitar and as he's counting it off he goes one <laughs> two <laughs> three <laughs> Because <laughs> it was such a tension, you know what he knew it, you know. He's trying to fuck with me, man. <laughs> Excuse my language. No, that's but, all right. Yeah, feel free. Know. So that happens, man. You know, you'll turn that page and it's like, oh boy, here's your career on the line. But like you said, 90 percent of the time it's just play a nice little whole note, you know, you know, play a, you know, here's some chords, play what you want to play. But then every once in a while, somebody goes, Oh, here, check this out. And it's like terror. Absolute terror. So it's always good. First sessions, I, you know, I came to work in uh, Hollywood with uh, Jimmy Webb. He found me playing in, in Honolulu in a band, and he brought me to Hollywood. And I worked on uh, the follow-up to Richard Harris's uh, MacArthur Park called The Yard Went On Forever. And he started letting me, bringing me in on the sessions with, uh, with Hal Blaine, uh, Joe Osborne, Larry Nectel, and this great guitar player named Mike Dacey, who was my mentor, and still is. Uh, and uh, I got to play acoustic guitar along with it. So I did like that, that album and something else with Jimmy, one of his uh, friends that he produced. And through that, he got me into, uh, I knew Glenn Campbell through Jimmy, because Jim... Glenn Campbell was recording a lot of Jimmy's songs. So that's kind of how I broke into it. I started working with Jimmy, and then I did a few Glenn Campbell sessions, and the guys that were working with Glenn Campbell would recommend me to other guys. Well, there's this guy, and da-da-da-da. At that time, there was an answering service called Arlen's Answering Service that you wanted to be on because if somebody didn't have someone for a session, they'd just say, ask Arliss to find someone and maybe they'd call you up, you know, and say, Hey, can you make this date? So that's how it kind of worked for me, how I kind of got in the door, just gradually, you know, playing with this guy in that way. And, you know, you build up four or five client producers 
Right. It's really important to do all the demo sessions for guys because those people that are doing demo sessions eventually become producers and stuff and they'll, you know, they'll like hire you, you know. So that's how the kind of the way I kind of got in through the door doing it. You and know, so the other thing. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing is it's like you really, there was a point when I first came to uh, play. That, every, that Larry Carlton, who's a good friend of mine, we both worked for Bill Medley together and at, at different times, but in consecutive, but he did it. And then when he quit, I joined Bill Medley. And uh, so we got to be friends right when he was first starting to get busy. And then he was like the cat, man. You know, he's probably right. the best guitar player in, in California, you know, <laughs> but I don't think he's there anymore, but he was the cat, man. And everybody, came into town and bought a 335 and tried to sound exactly like Larry Carlton. Right, know? right, right. And a lot of producers would dig it. You know, oh, yeah, that sounds like Larry. That's cool. But my thing was to, you know, my friend Mike Daisy, he played a Stratocaster. My thing was get a Stratocaster, try to, you know, get your own style because people will hire you for that style that you have, you know, more than trying to imitate the guy that's the most popular guy. Right, 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 right. You know, and so that's very important, too, if you want to go that route, you know. So describe how it changed gear wise from when you first got to California doing sessions and and kind of went on from there. Did you always keep it kind of simple as far as your gear or did you, you know, as time went on, did you have the rack of stuff and all that kind of? There was a time uh, I never had a lot of stuff. You know, I had a, uh, the, the the real Star, uh, Star Wars thing got to be uh, pedal boards. My friend Jay Graydon had a gigantic, enormous thing, and he would call it, you know, he'd say, uh, money in the bank, man, money in the bank. Every pedal <laughs> gets money in the bank, man. Because people like, you know, so they like what they see. You right. Know? And they come in, they see this giant thing of, uh, and the same thing, at first it was pedal boards, giant pedal boards, and then it became racks, and everybody had like insane like racks. But you would end up on the date, like maybe using a chorus or something. You wouldn't use anything in your rack, but it looked great. And people go, they like what they see, you know? <laughs> they come out and they see that and they go, this cat has got it together, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I got to be, uh, my friend Jimmy Webb called it, uh, you know, the, uh, the arms race. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to buy everything that they make, you know? So when you were you're at your busiest doing set, was it like three sessions a day, or how, how what how did it work for you? Were you were you basically yeah, doing it got to be like four. You know, I would like go in like or five. I would go in like early in the morning for a jingle date or a TV show, like Cheers. So Cheers would take like a half an hour to to do the whole show every year. It'd be like a couple every time they'd open a door or something. It'd be da 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 da, da you know. And that'd be all there was to it, you know. So I'd do a jingle date or something at ten in the morning or early in the morning, like eight or nine, and then you'd do a ten to one and a two to five, and uh, with some artist or what or a couple of artists, and then I would usually like do a, a, a more high profile, like a Jackson Brown or a Bonnie Raitt or a Little Feet or Jimmy Webb, somebody that was working at night, and that would go, you know, you know, till one or two or three in the morning, you know, and then I'd drive back home and get up and do it again. And sometimes at the height, it would go like two or three weeks, you know, seven oh, days man. a week of just doing that over and over and over, just going constantly like that. And that lasted for about, a, I don't know, a couple of years, I guess. And it started going down from there. It was wild. People used to call you and hire a band for a two-week uh range of sessions you know and you'd be the same band and uh you'd go for like a two week doing the album and then it got to be where you know they would call you for certain songs and then it caught they would call you to overcome in an overdub you know right, right, they right, started right. casting records you know like i think on this song i want this guy and this guy and i want this guy and this guy so it got to be where you would get called in to play one tune or two tunes or something like that as opposed to a two-week thing and then it got to be where you go to somebody's house and and sit in his bathroom and record acoustic guitars, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> so what was the, like, the heyday was mostly, like, late 70s-ish? Or, yeah, or did it kind of, say did it fluctuate 75. A bit? I was, like, my busiest time was 74 and 75, 76, like that, you know? 
It was also the craziest times in L.A., but that was cool. (laughs) (laughs) The things that go on, things that went on back in those days, man, you couldn't even conceive of walking into a studio and pulling pulling that sh- stuff off anymore right 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 used to be every producer had a, a glass uh, a mirror taped to the producers like disc you know like it was every studio had that right know? well describe when you first started doing stuff with the little feet guys and how did that all kind of come come to fruition well i knew lowell first you know uh, my wife patricia she lived next door to lowell when i first met her and uh, she brought uh, Law at that time. This is funny. He played the sitar and was studying at uh, Ravi Shankar's Kanara School in Los Angeles. And uh, she says, "Oh, I know this guy, man. He's a great sitar player." Blah, 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 blah. And I uh, came down uh, stairs at Jimmy's house one time, and Law was sitting in the living room, all dressed in white, sitting on the floor, like playing the sitar. And I went up and I said, "Oh, hey, man, we could like, you know, tune that to some, you know." tunings and do some like you know 12 tone avant-garde music it'd be wild man and he was like oh no i only play uh sacred indian music and i went oh yeah that's cool and then a week later he was in the standells doing dirty water man I went, now, here's a guy it's <laughs> got some humor man and uh he became like a real like good friend of jimmy's and myself because we both recognized you know how talented he was immediately you know and uh, he started hanging out with us, and that was before Little Feet. He was uh, he was going around. He was jamming with Jimi Hendrix a lot. He'd come by and tell us, like you know, about how he'd gone to this session with Jimi and how he was playing his guitar through a Leslie. And and at one point, he ran for union, uh, the union rep, you know, because there was a a guy that was supposed to go around to the clubs and try to talk everybody into joining the union and stuff like that. And he was ran for that office, and we all went. <laughs> Yeah, we all voted for him and everything. So that was all before Little Fee. And then he started putting the band together. And, the, you know, he caught Billy Payne, came down. And he had Roy Estrada from the Mother's Invention. So at that point, you know, he was hanging out at Jimmy's house. And I had this song, Fool Yourself, that I'd written. And I had played it. I'd done a demo at Jimmy's. And Jimmy, when Lowell was over there hanging, we were all playing our tunes and stuff. And Lowell was walking around singing, if you'll be my Dixie Chicken, I'll be your Tennessee Lamb. That was the only line he had. He kept saying, <laughs> you know, if you'll be my Dixie Chicken, I'll be your Tennessee Lamb. You know, And so, I, you know, Jimmy played that tape of, of Fool Yourself, and Lowell says, oh, I'll have that one, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how I first started getting it. Uh, he recorded that. He was like, you know, living at my house at the time. You know, he was moving from where he, where my wife was living next door to him. We ended up getting married and all this time. And then Lowell wanted to get out into Topanga. And so he was coming out and he was staying in my little chicken coop, really. <laughs> well, how old were you guys around this time? Oh, we were like 22, 23, something like that. Wild. Yeah. Just children. So he played some slide stuff with with Zappa too, didn't he? Was he in? He was in Zappa's band for. A he hot was in minute. Zappa's band. I don't know if he ever played any slide. He was sort of like the rhythm guitar player. I know he played on Uncle Meat that okay. record, and he was in Two Hundred Motels because he was, you know, he was telling all of us that if we wanted to be hippies in the jail, when they put all the hippies in jail, we could all go down to the studio and record a uh, film. 200 motels but it was too early in the morning none of us you know <laughs> nobody wanted to get up that early <laughs> now i wish i had done it but yeah he was in that band for a minute and then lowell like basically i mean uh frank basically encouraged him to start his own band uh, uh paul barrere used to love to tell the story of like you know he'd say oh we're gonna play willing now this is a song that that uh got lowell kicked out of the mother's invention but he didn't really kick him out i think uh he basically said you know you ought to have your own band and he actually gave the guys in the band like 50 bucks a week for a you know a a while as a you know support of some kind right yeah i used to get it from jam we could actually live on 50 bucks a week back in those days yeah imagine that (laughs) imagine that man so yeah you know he basically uh i think he wanted him on his label but he ended up being on getting on reprise you know instead but uh, yeah, that's how it kind of got started. And, uh, you know, the first couple albums went down. Then by the time uh, Dixie Chicken came along, I had 
uh, fool yourself on there. And I was, you know, I came in and it was sort of like the utility infielder. I would play like on one song. I played the pencil on time, loves a hero and different things like that. But, you know, they were all just buddies. It was like Hollywood is like a really kind of a small town, really. And you have your little clique of guys. And that was just all the, you know, all of our friends ended up being in Little Feet, you know, <laughs> the, the guys we hung out with. And, you know, I hung out with them too. But I was like committed to Jimmy Webb because he was, uh, he was like pretty much my mentor and stuff. You know, he taught me so much. So I was working with him all the time. I auditioned for the band at once before Paul, but I couldn't handle like uh, <laughs> some of the stuff, Brides of Jesus and stuff. I was not good enough. Paul fit the bill perfect, you know, and I got better over the years. So that when it finally came time, when Lowell finally was doing his solo album stuff, I, I got to go on the road with him and play live. But before then, you know, I wasn't playing live anywhere. I was just doing sessions. So you were all over the Thanks, I'll Eat It Here record, right? That's all. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty much the arranger on that that record. Paul, uh, <laughs> Lowell would give me a tune and say, uh, make it normal. he like he'd sit up at like three in the morning in his car like uh uh editing cassettes cassette recordings man which is very hard to do especially at that hour in the morning when you're really like uh tired you know and he would like make these things and give them to and it had like these you know 13 four bars and stuff in them you know make it normal So yeah, we worked on that album and just about had everybody in town playing on it at one point or another. That was the uh, the soundtrack. This last summer, we were up at my uh, our family's cottage and and my wife's like, let's listen, let's listen to some old Little Feet stuff. And I and I I turned on. Um, she loves that song. What do you want the girl to do? And and her and my daughters would play that song over and over and over, singing at the top of their lungs as they're out swimming on this lake and driving everyone insane. So yeah. if you felt a ringing in your ear last summer, that was probably... Uh, I felt the same way about it. I told Alan Toussaint, man, I said, hey, man, I've recorded that song five different times with with different people, and they should have been a hit. We did it with Boz, we did it with Bonnie, we did it with... Uh, um, Valerie Carter, we did it with uh, Vince Gill. I mean, we just kept cutting this song, and uh, we kept saying, this has got to be a hit record, man. It's just one of the best songs ever written, you know? Right. It's great. And it just, great you know, time. no one's had a hit with it yet, man. It's crazy. It is. It's just a wonderful song. So, I mean, was was you think Little Feet was kind of over when, when Lowell did his solo thing, or was just taking a break at that point? And unfortunately, of course, as we all know, and, you know, he passed away. But it, it, do you get the feeling that Little Feet was kind of on a uh, permanent hiatus at that point? Or can't you really You, it, you know, the night that Lowell died, he had called, uh, you know, he called Kenny and he'd called Sam, you know, and he was famously having a feud with Billy and Paul, you know. Okay. So that was like... Uh, his thing. Cause he called me up and said, they fired me. <laughs> so you got to help me get a band together. And I got him this band of guys that all were all, it was a, a complete band of new Orleans dudes that, that we had as a kicks band in town. We played all over LA just every Sunday night, someplace for fun, you know, and Lowell came down and just said, I'll hire the whole band. And we rehearsed and that's, that's the band we ended up going to roll with. But he had called, uh, Kenny and Sam and said, you know, I'm going to, you know, get this back together again. But of course, he, you know, he died the same night that he called him. So, you know, he's in his mind, he had plans for putting it back together some way or another, but it was just, you know. Well, I'll tell you what, there's some good bootlegs uh, on, on YouTube of that tour. Oh and yeah. Huh? The band sounded great. Yeah, it was a good band because, like I said, it was already a band. And we had uh, the two harm, uh, Jerry Jumminville would get out there and do uh, Hernando's Hideaway or whatever that da 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 da. That song, uh, God, what is the name of that song? You know, it's the saxophone supreme song, man, uh, that everybody plays, man. You know, but he'd get down uh, Har- on Harlem, his knees. Harlem Nocturne? Harlem Nocturne. And he'd get down on his knees and everything. I mean, it was we'd open up the show with stuff like that. And, you know, it was like really like an old-timey review and stuff. So it was really, it was good. It was a good band. So as the as the session scene kind of morphed into not as much, you started to do more road stuff with 
not only Lowell, but some other folks at that point? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was came a point, uh, yeah, just right about that time I went out with Lowell, I had gotten down to where I think I was probably making about $700 a week in sessions, you know? Okay. Right. And it was the, 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 about half of what I had been doing. And so I went out with Lowell, and then right after I right after Lowell died, I came home, and I think I did a couple of dates with Jeff Picaro and those guys, and I got a call from from Bob Dylan to come play with him, you know. And then I started playing with him, and then then it was Bob Seeger and Billy. They were putting little feedback, so that was it. Yeah, when I went out with Lowell, that was pretty much the end of the session things. I still go back home and. Uh, you know, when we come off the road with Dylan, I do sessions and stuff like that. But it great that was the uh, the transition to playing a lot more live. I got paid a lot more money to play live. Sure, but it was you know traveling was the the big thing. So how was how was being on the road with with Dylan? Were you, you do you do you hang out with a guy like that, or is it kind of like the band does their thing and he's sequestered? yeah, pretty much. You know, he was like doing his Christian things. So he was like really like uh, on his like best behavior. I mean, the guy oh, okay. was singing great. You know, he wasn't like doing any kind of like extracurricular activities, man. Maybe he'd have a beer or something occasionally or something. I mean, every one, I remember one time he opened up his blue jean jacket and he had a bottle of champagne in there. I was hiding like, hey, check it out, man. <laughs> <laughs> Look what I got. And so we went to his office and drank this bottle of champagne. But he was like, you know, he was really healthy and he was like singing superly good. He's like a he's like a jazz guy. You know, people always go, oh, Bob doesn't sing the melodies to a song, but he's like Miles Davis playing Funny Valentine. He'll just start, you know, he won't play the head. He'll just play, he'll just start playing. So he'll sing the lyrics to the changes, but he'll just riff on on the melody, you know, just like a jazz guy would do. And he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean... He's a master of backphrasing as well, where he would wait to start singing and then play catch up until the like next chord came along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I remember one night I said, "Man, I didn't think you were going to get to the four chord." You know, and the <laughs> next night, you know, the cat did the exact same thing and turned around and looked at me. You know, like, hey, <laughs> so he knew exactly what he's doing, man. The guy's very, very talented. And as far as a musician, people think he's just a great writer, but he's he's a very good musician. And as far as I know, he kind of invented that where you're playing almost like a kind of a swinging kind of thing, and then he'll start playing real straight on top of it, like in the middle of it. I never heard anybody else do that. I mean, I'm not a big folk guy, but he was the guy that I heard do that. And I thought, well, you know, this <laughs> that's a really interesting concept that he's doing there so anyway yeah it was like fun man he didn't travel with the band we started out it was like wild when we first started out we just had a greyhound bus with two guys in uniforms two drivers like wearing greyhound bus uniforms sitting in the front seat and the rest of us were just sitting in the in the regular bus seats and we did that for i don't know practically a year before we got a uh, a regular tour bus with with beds and things in them you know, we were driving down the road one time and the skylight blew off and Jim Keltner and I put a bass drum head and a whole bunch of gaffers tape and closed the skylight up. I mean, it was like <laughs> rough traveling, man. <laughs> but, so Keltner was on drums for that. Oh, yeah. Keltner and Spooner Oldham playing piano, man. He, the guy who played on all the Aretha things man, and Muscle Shoals, just beautiful player. And Tim Drummond playing bass. Oh, yeah. And a, guy named Terry Evans, who's a, a gospel piano player. And he plays great any kind of piano, but he's a great gospel piano player. And uh, he was playing. And let's see, that was just about, that was it, you know. It was so a nice, right tight little the time band. The, um, what is like the Slow Turning record came out? Or was that that record? Slow Train, like, yeah. Or, oh, Slow Train, right? Yeah, yeah that we train. were touring behind Slow High. Train Coming. Yeah, Slow Train Coming, thank you. And then Infidels came out shortly after that, right? Or is that later? No, no, no. Then we did Saved and Shot of Love. Yeah, and that Saved was like uh, we cut it at Muscle Shoals, where we basically were on tour, and we just uh, drove into the session and got off the bus and recorded for like about five days and got back on the bus and went down the road to the next day. Just, ah. Jerry Wexler said, that's the way the old Ray Charles band used to do it. Just bust and pull in in the middle of a tour and cut some tunes and move on. Wild. And, you know, Bob said, you know, mix it and 
do whatever you do to it and send me a copy. <laughs> you know, crazy. Yeah. So we did those records like that. It was very loose. You know, that's wild. Yeah. Wild stuff. Oh, it was wild, man. Everybody's always tried to straighten it out. It was the same with Harry Nielsen. People would like uh, say, well, you know, if I could just, you know, get the A-team guys and, uh, and, and go in and do a session with Harry, it would like be like the, the ones he did with, uh, you know, Richard Perry, those wonderful records he made. And by the time I, when I started becoming friends with Harry, and we were like really pals, man, uh, he was having these parties that were masquerading as recording sessions, man. We would, we would meet up at Martoni's restaurant down the street from rca in hollywood and we'd have you know drinks and dinner and hang out until we got tired of hanging out and then we'd walk over to rca and it would just go on all night and he'd have sake in the uh the, the in the coffee pot in the coffee <laughs> make for all sake and it was like dennis budemeyer and jesse davis and myself playing guitars and klaus vorman and jim keltner and then sometimes Ringo would come too, so there'd be two drums. One session we had Leon Russell, Dr. John, and Van Dyke Parks all playing piano. And they would come in, they'd have no song. They would just write the song in the session. And there'd be like 20 people all that's just sort of hanging out, you know, partying down heavy. And if you showed up just to visit and you were a musician, they'd find a mic if you were, you know, I remember Novi coming in and playing viola, and then there would be, you know, Bobby Keys would come in and play saxophone. I mean, you just put up a mic and play along. So we had all these people in there, and they they have a song called Jesus Christ, You're Tall. It's about a basketball <laughs> player. That was the only, only lyrics was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ, You're Tall. <laughs> that was the whole song, man. So it was like, it was very wild. So producers would, you know, come in and say, you know, if I could just, you know, get some control over this, we could make some really good records. And they would do the same with Bob. And, and it was a funny incident with uh, with Dylan. With They called Shelly Yakis and um, Jimmy Iovine called up and said, we're doing this session. I want you to come down early and, you know, we're going to get it all together. And I go down and we're doing this song called Caribbean Wind. And I'm David Mansfield's in one little room playing uh, mandolin. And I, I think I was playing the mandolin and he was playing a violin. And then everybody, Keltner had a bunch of baffles around him. And then Tim was in another little spot. Everybody was all discreetly placed, you know, and uh, Bob comes in and his thing was to record in old studios, you know? So this was Richard Perry's studio, studio 55, which was like very, you know, high, high tech. <laughs> and they come up to Bob and they say, Hey, you know, this is the studio where they cut white Christmas and they play the track that we had just cut. Right. And Bob turns to his like guy and says, Hey, give me the music to white Christmas because I can't cut into my music in this studio. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so he goes, Fred, where are you, man? I said, I'm in this room back here in the back. And he says, get your electric guitar and come out here. And so all of a sudden, you know, we had like two or three electric guitars and drums and bass and all the, I'd look over and, and a mic would be lying on the floor that was supposed to be pointing at my amp. You know? <laughs> and we're playing like just one song after another, like with typical the way we would do a still in session, we just start playing. He just start playing songs and you follow along. And after an hour or so, he might go in and listen to them, might not listen to them at all, you know, just play some more songs. So I look up, and Jimmy Iovine and, and Shelly Ackes have disappeared. There's like nobody there. It's just the second engineer running the session at this point. So, you know, that was the best laid plans of Jimmy Iovine, like, uh, came to naught on that occasion. <laughs> you know? And that, those, uh, the groom is waiting at the altar, keeps turning up on bootlegs and stuff all the time. And it was one of the, uh, one of the songs we cut that day. Wild. Yeah, man, it's good stuff. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains.
So when you're when you're touring with Dylan, what, what kind of what kind of gear were you using just for kicks and giggles? I started playing. I don't know why either, because it was after Mark Knopfler who had this complete signature sound with the uh, with this track. Right. I played a Les Paul. I just came in and started playing a Les Paul. And so Bob was playing a Les Paul, and we did that for a long time. And then finally, he said, "Hey, man, these these guitars are too heavy. Let's go back, <laughs> let's go back to a Strat." So I got my Strat and started playing it. I don't know why. He had a cool thing though. He would like take you, have have his uh his uh a production guy take you down to a music store and have you buy a couple of amps to use on the tour and buy a couple of guitars and there were his guitars and he would have every different guitar player that he hired pick out you know two or three guitars for his collection and he remembers all of them because i've had you know guys that uh, tech guys that come to work with us that have worked with dylan and they go yeah bob showed me this flying v that he said you got him <laughs> you know so he's got you know i got this one from fred tag and i got this one from uh, this guy here and larry campbell got me this guitar you know <laughs> Yeah, it's a really cool idea, man, for getting different people's ideas of cool guitars and stuff, you know? <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. So after Dylan, was the Bob Seeger thing you said? That, that yeah. Kind of yeah, that was pretty much it. Uh, you know, after Bob was done, I just kind of hung out. And then uh, uh, we started doing the record. We did the, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, like a Rock. Right. Yeah, we did that album, and as we finished the album, he asked both. Uh, uh, he asked me and the other guitar player guy, who's now I'm having a senior moment. Uh, Rick Vito. Vito. I keep wanting to say Rick Zito and Vito. Rick Vito was playing. You know the beautiful slide on the uh, yeah, indie, uh, like, like rock. You know, like Layla or something. Man, it was just gorgeous. So yeah, we, so we uh, went on. We went on the road with Bob at that point, and that was like you know. A whole other ball of wax. <laughs> so if if you don't mind, you know, I think a lot of people when they when they they think of, oh man, you've played with, you know, all these different artists and so on and so forth, people automatically think that, you know, I don't maybe some of them do, maybe some of them don't, but um that you get a piece of every of all these different things you plan. But most of the time when you're doing a session, it's it's like you get paid through the union and you're done, right? Unless it's like so unless it's like a certain thing that's pre negotiated where you're going to get a little extra taste because of yeah, right, yeah. If you if you made that deal, but yeah, the normal thing is to uh, is to just get your session pay. And it used to be that every record company had to be a signatory to the American Federation of Musicians, but that has all gone down out the window. And now I don't think anybody's a, you know doing anymore. Maybe movie dates, I guess, are union dates now, but it got to be where I'm still a lifetime member because I'm I'm a pro union guy. But right, right, none of the dates I ever do or it doesn't seem like it's all just you know they just pay you. But uh, it seemed like it started with the Jane Fonda video. I knew the guys that played the music on the Jane Fonda video, and they said, "Hey, look, guys, we'll give you a thousand bucks, you know, in cash, and no residuals or anything." And everybody went, yeah, 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 sure. It's a, you know, you know, it's a exercise video. And little did you know <laughs> that it would go completely crazy, you know. Which is so funny you should mention that because I remember my wife back in the day, she had that Jane Fonda video, and she's doing the exercise, and I hear this this cool inversion of a minor chord over the thing. I'm like, what is that? And I stole that chord. <laughs> I use it all the time from the Jane Fonda video. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, uh, guys were making that at the time. I forgot who the guitar player was, but uh, John Hobbs was the guy who was piano player who was doing all that stuff. But yeah, I remember when they were telling me when it was going down, and that started to be the thing. People just started saying, "Hey, how about I just give you cash?" And you know, we call it quits. You know, we go on our way. And everybody was like, "Yeah, yeah, that sounds cool." But uh, my friends like Ralph Grierson, the piano player and stuff like that, studio guys were like, "No, no, let's run us through the union, man." Because you don't get your benefits, you don't get your social security, you don't get your pension, you don't get any of that stuff, you know. Fortunately, I was working in the studios when everything was a union gig, so I, you know, I managed to come out with a pension at the end of it all, you know, when I got to be 65. I'm a pensioner now. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, man. So uh, walk us through when the, when the feet were formed with the glorious Let It Roll record. Well, that was Billy and I on the road with, uh, you know, we were on the road with Bob Seeger and we were hanging out 
all the time. We, you know, we had Bob would do like uh, one or two shows, and then he'd do a show, and then take three days off, and then do another show, and take another three days off. So we had a lot of time where we were just sitting around, you know, and talking <laughs> and going to. We used to go to bookstores and hear authors talk about their books and stuff because there's nothing to do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, uh, Billy started sounding me saying, you know, we did this jam session, you know, they were opening. We used to rehearse at this place called The Alley in in North Hollywood and uh, the rehearsal studio. And they were renovating it and they made a little feet room with all this uh, little feet swag and stuff on the walls and everything. And uh, so they asked the guys to come down and dedicate it. And so... They, you know, uh, I wasn't there, but Billy and Paul and the rest of the guys jammed and they dug it so much that Billy said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about pulling this thing back together again because everybody's kind of gotten sober and, you know, people aren't crazed, you know, and (laughs) strung out on heroin or anything. So, you know, I think we can pull this back together again. Would you like to join in? And I was like, yeah, sign me up. And that's how we kind of got it. That was we finished with Seeger and. 86 and I think 87 we were writing all the songs at Billy's house and by 88 we had, you know recorded it and we're heading out on the road I saw that tour it was glorious yeah it was fun man it was like my first thing I was like you know Paul was Paul was my road guy I mean he was like you know my road t- t- told me how to live and you know, I learned how to t- to fold my t-shirts. We're going to have a bus. I went, really? We're going to get a bus? He goes, hell yeah, we're getting a bus. You know, it's like, you know, my first, uh, my first adventure going out on a, with a band, you know, besides Dylan, where, you know, (laughs) we, we had like, uh, not, uh, we didn't have the uh, good accommodations. We always stayed in very funky places. The little thing was my first, uh, you know, rock star tour where we're staying in nice hotels and eating good food and having yes. a good time <laughs> you know and that's been fun with our new drummer tony leone this is the first gig where he's ever gotten his own his own room you know oh, bless <laughs> he's, he's always been like having day rooms and stuff like that where they shared showers and you know had <laughs> slept on the bus and all that kind of thing and this is his first gig where he gets his own room every night. <laughs> well, he's doing a great job. It was fun sitting in with you guys. The band was I'm wrong. telling you, man, these two new guys, Scott Sherrard, who I know you've talked to earlier, he's just, you know, a glorious guitar player. And, uh, you know, and Tony, man, just surprised the shit out of us because he uh, can sing. Like yeah, the tambour he sings of his like voice, Levon, man. <laughs> the timbre of his voice when he does the, uh, the Paul tunes is really unbelievable. Yeah, you know, Billy had called me and said, you know, this uh, Tony wants to, you know, wants to sing "Skin It Back," and I, you know, I don't know. We'll just see what he does. We had no idea. We thought, oh, I don't. It's gonna be funny. It's gonna be weird. And he just like threw down, man. And we went, wow. And he's told me that he plays mandolin. I'm sure he's really good. I haven't heard him. He hasn't done it yet. But uh, yeah, I mean, the guy's full of surprises, man. He was a jazz guy. He played with Lou Donaldson and all those guys, man. That's wild. Yeah. Crazy stuff. So Yeah, so the band's rocking, man. So when you did when you did the feet thing, you know, starting in, in eighty eight when you started going out again, that was like your 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 primary thing that you did for many years, right? Or were you still kind of juggling sessions and other artists and so no, on? No, that so was forth? pretty much yeah, because we were going out sometimes two or three months. You know, I would still do dates occasionally, but you know, uh, my wife would would collect calls, and so when we come off the road, she'd have like uh, some dates booked, but not very often. I mean, it was mostly, you know, most of the time it was little feet all the way. Yes, and that's the way it is now. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to think. So so there was the uh, it was Let It Roll, and then representing the Mambo, and then uh, Shake Me Up was after that, right? And then you guys made the uh, yes. adjustment. Uh, when uh, Craig Fuller left, what was that after the after the after the third re- reunion record, right? Yeah, I guess, man. You got <laughs> my memory's gone now. Actually. But Sean came in on "Ain't Had Enough Fun," I think. Right, 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 right. When we had Sean, because that was a really good record. And, uh, Cherny like uh, engineered, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good. All one. the records are great. I mean, there's always. 
I mean, there's there's gems on every one of them. And um, and it was always one of those things where, you know, it was kind of Little Feet was, to me, you know, like my favorite band and what I aimed to do in my own way when I was writing songs. Because, you know, it's blues, but it's funk, it's jazz, there's a folk element, but it's just, it's just groovy, cool shit. And there's a jam aspect to it. Um, but as a result, because it's hard to categorize, uh, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't get the same notoriety, if you will, of like, a, you know, an Almond Brothers or the dad or something like that. But, yeah. you know, but for me, I mean, obviously, you know, as a fan, I almost like that even better. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, man. There's always this big pull to like get into the rock and roll hall of fame. People like Little Feet deserves to be in the rock and roll hall of fame. And I keep going, that'll be the kiss of death, man. <laughs> you want to avoid that at all costs. <laughs> Because we get to still be the outliers, man. It's just really weird. We talk about it all the time. Little Feet has, for some reason or another, has been given this dispensation to do just any kind of music that we decide to do. Other bands have, have tried to do that and you know not been as successful, but we seem to have permission to to play a country song in the middle of a bunch of funk tunes and right. you know, just whatever, <laughs> whatever it's you want. It do. should be. Lowell always said, there are no rules. The only rule is there are no rules. <laughs> exactly. Exactly correct. So from the, uh, you know, obviously you're going to be partial to some of the songs you had a hand in, but what are some of your favorite tunes in the set list every night that you look, I mean, other than all of them, but are there oh, any yeah. of them that, that stand out as your favorites? Well, right now, you know, we're doing this Waiting for Columbus, so uh, uh, we're just doing that in order of the, of the, the we're actually starting to screw around with that a little bit too. We started thinking, why did they put that song there? It doesn't work. We're going to move, we're going to move us down the line a little bit, man. People aren't, you know, aren't appreciating this thing. I really like uh, mercenary territory. I love playing that song, man. I just think that's one of the best, uh, you know, one of my favorites. Uh, I get to, I enjoy playing Oh Atlantic. It's the one song that I play slide guitar on. Paul made me learn, this solo that I like play the same solo every night, <laughs> you know, in, in fact, uh, Scott does too on, uh, just like one of the, I think it's on, uh, I believe it's on mercenary territory. He plays a solo right off the record, but he goes, it's just such a classic solo. It goes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just goes, I just can't, you know, I ain't going to play anything else, you know, but I, I enjoy doing that because Paul said, I'm not going to play slide on everything. You've got to play slide on something. And I'm like, I don't know how to play slide guitar, man. <laughs> and so he forced me to learn how to, you know, get the, it's all about your left hand, you know, get vibrato. But uh, yeah, so I enjoyed that. I really enjoy mercenary territory, uh, you know. And like you said, uh, I always enjoy playing uh, Church Falling Down, one of my tunes. Right. It's a different kind of scene, you know. So, yeah, you know, I like really enjoy playing most of them, almost all the songs, you know. You get a little tired of playing Dixie Chicken after a while, you know. Right. But that's just the way it is, you know. It's a good thing. <laughs> I, you know, I always thought it was funny about, about you and Paul is that you, you never fell victim to, which I have all the time, of just always getting new guitars and just having the guitar. It's like you've played the same guitars forever. I mean, that, that Sunburst Strat you've had forever – that red strat you ever you know, Paul had, you know, the black strat, the brown strat, and then he had kind of that that greenish blue that strat, yeah. the bluish, bluish green, you know, uh, I think it was Tao's turquoise. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Uh that so sounds like it. I describe, I mean, so you you don't like going into every town, like there so many people get into that thing where it's like, okay, what are the guitar stores in town? And then coming off the road with like yeah. another acquisition or or five or ten. How no, have you I managed, never, Fred? Never did get into the <laughs> buying guitars, Jones, man. I mean, people send me memes all the time and jokes about a guy, you know, like going to buy a guitar. Or if your husband's starting to do chores all around the house. It's because he's bought a new guitar, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, uh, you know, I never, uh, only guitars I have are guitars that I, that I play, you know, that I had to have them. Uh, I, I had to have it for a reason. Somebody said, you need a Stratocaster or you need a Les Paul. Uh, Jimmy Webb gave me this beautiful uh, uh, Johnny Smith guitar that I played on Boss Skaggs' Coming Home Blues record. It's just wonderful guitar. I played on a bunch of different stuff. But he gave that to me, and I still have that. And, I, uh, and when I first came to L.A., 
to join this band called the Waterproof Candle. It's supposed to be a psychedelic band. They gave me this electric 12 string, a 335 black electric 12 string. Wow. That Lowell like, spent his whole life trying to talk me into selling him the Bartolini pickups off of it. You know, <laughs> and never would give them to him, man. The humbuckers. I had these two humbucker pickups on this thing. And he kept saying, You never play that guitar, man. Like, you know, sell me those pickups. I'm going, no, 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 man. You know, no, 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 no. So yeah, I just have the guitars that I was dealt, you know, basically here's your guitars. The last one I got was I talked to, I went to up to Yorma. A peace ranch and Paul and I in the funky feet for the quartet <clears throat> played up there and uh, we didn't want to bring any guitars so Yorma loaned us some of his and he loaned me like this he says I've been listening to the way you play you, I think you'd dig this and he showed me this Mexican jazz master you know this these uh, they're cheap uh, jazz masters that were made in Mexico and I taught my uh, my wife and son into uh, getting me one for Christmas so that's the newest guitar that I have bought in years i got this uh, jazz master now yeah jazz masters have a cool thing to them yeah first notes i played her i was instantly brought right back to high school and all the gigs i used to play you know <laughs> because those are the tunes man i had a friend of mine whose father was a seven states rep for fender and he wasn't a guitar player he was just a salesman but he had he would come up with all the guitars like the, the jaguar and the jazz master everything that came out he would get it and he would let me borrow it and take it out for like, you know, a week here and a week there. So I got to play all of them. I never liked anything as much as the, uh, the Stratocaster. I used to have a Mustang. I used to buy, those were like $60. And if you needed a guitar, you could buy a Mustang for 60 bucks, man. And it was sounded, had one pickup, but it just sounded great. It sounded perfect. You know? So whenever I needed a guitar, I'd just go out and get a $60 Mustang. So describe for us, if you don't mind, some of the, you know, so you grew up in Little Rock? Yeah. So how what was your musical background when you were growing up and when did you start playing in bands and that kind of stuff? Well, I started out, you know, my, uh, my father and my brother were trumpet players. So I started out being a trumpet player when I was five, you know, and then uh, I wanted to be a drummer. And so I was playing pots and pans and, you know, cardboard boxes. And my parents got me a bass drum and a snare drum and eventually got a, a set of drums. And then when Elvin, my brother, had a good friend <clears throat> who played the guitar, and uh, I just loved the way he played. He was like a kind of a jazz guy, though, but, but uh, he played a little Fender. And so I loved that. And then Elvis came along, and when Elvis came along, I was like, I got to get a guitar. I mean, I loved Elvis, you know, the, the hound dog and all that stuff. And I was all over that stuff. And, uh, in fact, he came to Arkansas to play a concert and my brother took his girlfriend, and I was like, you're a jazz boy. You don't even like Elvis, man. You know, let me go with your girlfriend to see Elvis. But <laughs> you don't understand the deal, dude. <laughs> you know, he was six years older than me. But you don't get it. <laughs> right. It ain't going to this concert because I love Elvis. <laughs> I'm expecting some, uh, yes. some consequences to this. <laughs> you, know? you know, so I got a guitar at that point. And, you know, when I was uh, just at the end of junior high school, I had learned, you know, uh, a Jimmy Smith, I mean, not Jimmy Smith, Jimmy Reed, you know, got me running and Bo Diddley. And, and, and we played, you know, some guys uh, from the high school heard me playing at a church thing up in my little church. And I joined a little band called the Ramblers. And we, uh, We'd play, you, you played songs by the name of the guy. People would come up and say, play Chuck Berry, play Bo Diddley, play Jimmy Reed. They never asked for tunes. They'd ask for, you know, composers. <laughs> so, in fact, John Lennon famously said, if they didn't call it rock and roll, they'd call it Bo Diddley or, or, or uh, they'd call it, uh, you know, Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry, exactly, yeah. <laughs> play Chuck Berry. Right. That's the way it was. So I asked that, well, you know, we played those tunes and then you'd also play a little bit of this. Now, you, if uh, <clears throat> Bob Palmer, I don't know if you know Robert Palmer, he's a writer, not the uh, singer, but we were in high school together and uh, we had a kind of a little, he played avant-garde clarinet, you know, and was in a, in a band called the Insect Trust that played like really out blues kind of stuff. And uh, he, he wrote a, a preamble to a book called uh, 
the unruly history of rock and roll where he describes the gigs that we used to go play and uh, how you would go about it. It's really good if anybody ever gets a chance to read it because it really describes our, our experience where you would go and people would be sitting at some little country bar out in the middle of nowhere and you'd start playing Oh, one song and see, well, people are not getting up. So you'd play another one. Then you'd try to play like a kind of a rumba tune, like, uh, you know, some little uh, poinciana or something, you know, and see what moved them, see what got them up off the chair and the dance and stuff like that. You just keep adjusting your playlist, man. Let's do walk, don't run, you know, and maybe they'll dig that, you know, and just sort of play it by ear and find out what they liked and then go from there, man. And that was how I got started. And then I started going out to uh, some places that were uh, out of town, like uh, roadhouses, literally roadhouses right outside the city limits. One of them was called the Beverly Gardens. And I met up with these guys that were like much older than me. <clears throat> they were all like contemporaries of Levon, Helm, and those guys. And they started letting me sit in. I was 16. And they started letting me sit in with the, with the band playing tunes. They were very nice. They let me stand there and sort of learn. I didn't even know what you guys. I asked the guy, I said, what do you call this music? And he says, blues. And I said, well, what kind of rare? He goes, buy a B.B. King record. And I was like, okay. You know, <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I knew I liked it, you know, but I didn't know what you called it. So I learned from those guys. One guy's name was Mouse Hockersmith, man. He was like this great guitar player, singer. Another guy was Jimmy Ford. And they had like regional hits. I think he was in a, uh, Miles Hockersmith was in a band called the Pacers in Little Rock. And there was Harold Jenkins in the house, in Rock House, which was Conway Twitty. Before he became Conway Twitty, he was ah. Her Harold Jenkins in Rock House. They were like a really popular rockabilly band in Arkansas and uh, just different bands. Levon, you know, and the, uh, Ronnie Hawkins band was really big. I went and saw those guys. I got to play a fraternity party where we played early in the evening and then they played later. And I, you know, got to see them in the park. I was standing in the parking lot, watching, kind of spying on them. I was too shy to talk to them, but they all had the one button suits and the little silver flats and the, you know, <laughs> and the pompadour haircuts and everything, man. You know, so that's how I kind of got started on that stuff, you know. And then I went off to college and, you know, got into. So where'd college. you go to school? I went down to, to a place called East Texas State College, and then I had went spent a couple of years there with this. Uh, uh, my best friend was this trombone, wonderful trombone player named Wayne Harrison, who was a good friend of uh, Lou Marini's as well, and uh, he was just this insanely excellent musician. He taught me taught me how to arrange and all that stuff. I learned more for just hanging out with him than I did from the classrooms. You know, that was the cool thing about going to school and music school. You probably had the same thing. It wasn't about the classroom so much. It was about the networking and jamming with all the different musicians from all over the place, you know? And so I transferred over to North Texas, <clears throat> but before I got into classes there, I started playing in this show band in Dallas with this saxophone player named Joe Davis. And, he got us a gig up in Oklahoma City for a brand new club that was opening. It was a six-night-a-week gig backing up uh, a floor show, and then we'd play four set, four dinner music sets and stuff, too, which is a gig that doesn't exist anymore. And it was like my college education because we'd have these kind of grade C, uh, two jacks and a chill, maybe a comedian. We had belly dancers. We had a magicians. All these people would come in and do like two weeks or a week at this club and we'd do their show and they'd come in with this big, you know, Las Vegas uh, set of arrangements for this quartet and we'd play through them and we got so good at it. I mean, it was such a great experience that, uh, you know, doing a six night a week gig, there, there are no six night a week gigs anymore in America. You know, it was like uh, before holiday in bands were even was the thing. Now there's not a, no holiday. It used to be every holiday in had a club and had a band that played there five nights a week, but you know, no more of that. But uh, we got so that we would like meet the act in the coffee shop. We wouldn't even re rehearse, and they'd bring in their their music. We'd sit in a booth, and uh, me being the drummer, they'd have like a Judy Garland medley, and I would go, "Okay, let's run this down." Saxophone player, we go da 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 da, and I'm going. Dun, 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 dun. Ah, We're singing ah, all the parts, and the bass player's going boom 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 boom. 
And the act would stand there like with their mouth open, go like, what in the fuck? You guys are crazy. (laughs) And then we'd go in and play their show, man. They were just like, what? (laughs) Awesome. It was great. It was a great experience, man. And I just learned so much, man. It was just invaluable as far as being able to learn about music and reading and notation. So, So you were playing drums for this thing. Yeah, I was playing drums for that. And uh, the leader of the band came over to my apartment once and he saw this guitar leaning in the corner. He said, whoa, what's up with that? And I said, oh, you know, I play guitar. And I had this kind of schizophrenic thing where I played trumpet in the marching band, in the concert band, classical music. And I played guitar in rock and roll bands and I played jazz drums. And, you know, my jazz bow friends didn't know anything about my rock friends and my rock friends didn't know anything about my jazz gigs until this guy said, Oh no, you're going to come up and play, uh, you know, the guitar. I'll play the drums. And then, you know, you're going to play the shadow of your smile and the trumpet. And, you know, it became a big show band show thing, you know, all the time. So that's, he was the guy that got me to actually become a multi-instrumentalist. I was just totally separate, but equal, you know? (laughs) Right. Man, what a what a wild career you've had! It's if you know, I was when I think back about it now. There's not a a gig that I'd ever play. Oh my God! There's a uh, a boat going by. Oh, look at that! Look at that! Yeah, man. I'm like I used to play. Uh, uh, I had a friend of mine that played tuba in a um, Salvation Army band, and I we'd, we'd go down. And my friend, the trombone player Wayne, and I, we'd go down and put on a little Salvation Army uniform and and play, uh, you know, Christmas carols or whatever the guy. I mean, there's not a gig that exists that I didn't do at one point or another, you know. I played in an Army band doing parades because my, my uh, band director was the warrant officer of the, uh, of the National Guard band, and he would, you know, make the first chair players all join the National Guard band, you know, and fill it out. So, I bet, yeah, I had amazing experiences, man. It's just really amazing. And so how just, old were you uh, when you? What at what point did you decide to go out to California? What was? Oh no, you went to. You I went to, to Hawaii, man. Hawaii. I was like uh, just turning twenty-one, man. Just turning twenty-one. I turned twenty-one in Jacksonville, Florida, and we went to uh, Flo- uh, went to uh, to the uh, uh, Honolulu to play this club, and we were there for about a month. And that was a funny scene because Jimmy Webb had just written up, up and away in my beautiful balloon. And by the time I get to Phoenix, two totally different songs that both of them just struck, stuck out like, you know, like, what is this? And in the pop world, when they came out and, uh, I mean, you know, uh, by the time I get to Phoenix didn't have a a chorus. It was like the, one of the first songs that, you know, it was all verses, no chorus. (laughs) And, uh, so, I do. We were talking among the band about who's this guy, Jimmy Webb. Who's this guy, Jimmy Webb? He's like, this is amazing. And so we're playing. Ode to Billy Joe had just come out. I'm playing an instrumental version of Ode to Billy Joe. This guy comes running into the club and says, "What was that song you're playing?" And I said, "Ode to Billy Joe." He goes running out of the club. It was like an open air club, like where you could walk down the sidewalk and look in. You could see the act and what was going down. And uh, <clears throat> He comes back in the last set with these two guys and they're all dressed in white, looking very California and everything, you know, young dudes. So they come up to me after the set and they say, Hey man, like, uh, you know, there's something I want to talk to you about. Would you like come over to my hotel across the street at room so-and-so after you finish up the night? And I'm like, turn to the band. And I said, Hey man, we're going to score. These guys are dealers, man. We're going to get some LSD. I swear <laughs> to God, that was just what was happening, man. You know, I had just met Taran Porter. He was telling me about the, how the Doobie brothers, he, he had just joined this band called the Doobie brothers. And I was like, Hey man, okay, here we go. I'm going to go over here and we're going to score. And I walk in and he goes, hi, I'm Jimmy Webb. And I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you're Jimmy Webb? We were just talking about you, you know? And he said, I'm, you know, the mothers of uh, the mamas and papas are retiring and I'm trying to put together this band. And so I have this house that we're all living in and I want you to come over there. And so I just packed up, gave my notice and but we had just finished that run anyway. So I went to uh, to L.A. and came into this. It was like a reality TV show. He owned it. He had rented this mansion that used to be the former Philippine embassy and it had 20 bedrooms in this beautiful 
you know, just beautiful place. And he had this whole rock and roll band living in there. And that's where I met Lowell, like playing downstairs. You'd come downstairs and Jimi Hendrix would be crashed on the couch or uh, Mitch Mickle was playing drums down in the basement where we had shit set up. And Peter Tork would be barbecuing you know, in the backyard. I mean, it was just like a 24-hour party. And <clears throat> we hired this lady who was a good friend of Lenny Bruce's to be the uh, Jimmy's manager said these crazy bunch of hippies are all living in this beautiful mansion. We need a responsible adult who can, you know, who also smokes pot and can hang <laughs> with these guys, you know, and don't let them burn the house down. Right. You know, so she was there and, and, uh, her daughter turned out to be Patricia who I got married to and she introduced the thought of law. So that's, how it all happened, man. So we were all just, you know, <clears throat> trying to, uh, we made a, uh, but the band was called a waterproof candle and we made a song called electrically heated child, which was about a test tube baby. A really <laughs> beautiful song. It's a great songwriter named Steve Simone wrote. And, uh, you can find it. People now, it's now people are going, Oh my God, that band was really like wild. That's a psychedelic <laughs> band. No, now it's like, you know, one of those beat digger things. Like, do you have electrically heated child, man? I mean, you know, <laughs> can you find one of those singles? <laughs> Very rare. Electrically heated child. Yeah, man. It was good. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. That was our first band there, you know? So you hung a bit with Hendrix back in the day. I never met him. Never saw him, man. Oh, no kidding. No, Lowell used to hang with him a lot. I mean, I, he would be down at Jimmy's house, but I never, like, you know, I never saw him. They just told me about it. <laughs> Wild. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Well, Fred, thanks so much for spending some time with us. I, you bet, man. I, I knew you'd have some stories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I, when I was a kid, I was playing gigs when I was 16, and I kept thinking, how long is it going to be where I can get away with being a kid? You know, oh, you're really good for a 16-year-old, you know, that kind of shit, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> and I go, when's it going to be like, you know, you're standing on a thing? And so now I think I've started out playing it really young, and I'm hoping to, like, uh, you know, make it to where I'm just ridiculously old and still playing, you know, so I can get both <laughs> ends of the spectrum to where they go, right. hey, you play pretty good for a 90-year-old. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, my friend, you take it easy. I hope that we uh, cross paths sooner than later again. But thanks so Me much too, for joining me. Me too, man. I really enjoyed talking to you, man. Likewise, my friend. Have a good one. Say hello to the boys for me. I will for sure. All right. Take it easy. All right, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her. <laughs>